brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know The less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, we have read between enough lines by now to know that a carefully crafted box of convention has been placed over our mundane modern lives and people have become more enthralled with scrolling through their phones than discovering the real mysteries, magic, and rich hidden history that's usually all around them. Ley lines, energy vortexes, sacred geometry, ancient mounds, ruins that align with the night sky, cannibalistic giants, healing hot springs, the amplification and harnessing of the Earth's natural energy flow, etc., etc. Of course, many of these things are spread all across America, and while a lot of Americans might be enamored by the Giza Plateau, Gobekli Tepe, or the stone circles of the British Isles, Sadly, we are largely ignorant of the sullied history of our own surroundings. Most likely because the official version minimizes the crimes of the European invasion, but also because many of the colonialists and early founders were deeply embedded in the esoteric arts, Freemasonry, and a plethora of other secret societies, and they have both co-opted the environmental magic that was used by the people who were here before, and also built and ritualized many of their own structures and monuments that harness these very same forces they'd rather you just know nothing about. Well, we've talked about the Freemasonic layout of Washington, D.C. nearly to death, but we know the American landscape holds many other things of interest, and that brings me to today's guest, Corey Daniel. Corey is a third-generation Phoenician, writer, researcher, and professional guide currently living in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and he has spent most of his life immersing himself in his environment and learning all he can about desert flora, Native American cultures, religion, physics, poetry, botany, philosophy, primitive survival, traditional archery, and the occult. 
He's since taken his passion and knowledge to the net with the Phoenix Enigma, a deeply fascinating website devoted to decoding and reverse engineering the esoteric symbolism, history, and mystery of the magical microcosm that is Phoenix, Arizona. He's blown my mind more than once, and I wish every major city had someone so dedicated to digging out the good stuff, the teller of untold tales, an esoteric Arizonian explorer extraordinaire, Corey Daniel. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you for the intro. <laughs> Very much. I appreciate that. Yes. I wish everyone was so enthusiastic about my work as you are. <laughs> <That'd> be great. <laughs> I think they will be, man, because, I mean, there is just so much to talk about. I know we're not going to get to it all, and I've been really looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. It's become really one of my favorite types of shows to do, a deep look into one area or city full of rich history and mystery to unpack. We've talked to guests who have become similar types of scholars about places like the Susquehanna River or the city of Philadelphia, and I'm just pretty psyched to expose the audience to the awesome stuff you've uncovered about the Phoenix area, and maybe to kick this off, you can give us a little overview of your thoughts on Phoenix, Arizona, now that you've learned all these things and maybe a bit of how you got all that insight. I mean, this is not the kind of stuff you come across every day, you know? No, you're right. It's not. It didn't all come at once. It was me growing up in Phoenix. And tell you the truth, there was really no interest in my own town until I moved out of it. And I moved to the western part of the state when I was about 18 Cowboyed for a few years and ran the family business. We owned operated gas stations, but that gas station where I went to was in the middle of nowhere. It's about 300 people halfway to Las Vegas from Phoenix. It's called Wikiup, Arizona. And that town is probably one of the most mysterious places, in my opinion, in Arizona. And I met an old hippie that had been living there, and he was into the occult and Egypt and the ancient mysteries. I befriended him and we just roamed those deserts for years out there. And when I moved back to Phoenix, everything that I had become out there in that desert with my hometown coming back at me, I just started studying and I, I don't know why. And I started recognizing all the pyramids around Phoenix. And then I got into the history a little bit. Then I became a tour guide. I had to reinvent myself after 08, 09. The crash came, and like a lot of people, we lost everything we had, and I became a tour guide and just dove in 100% into the history of Phoenix, and that's when everything coalesced. And if you have a background in the occult and you have a background in botany or pharmacia or witchcraft as we know it, and you start putting it together with the modern-day pieces of art that's commissioned and the, the speeches and then – it just rolled, mm. to make a long story short. And it, uh, there's a point at which all knowledge really does dovetail, whether you're talking about Western history or botany or the occult. There's a point where it all intersects, and that's where I'm at. And my bubble is Phoenix, and I'm glad it is because it is a rich, untapped, undiscovered nest and hive of Freemasonry. And that's what I've been concentrating on for the past four years here. Mm. Yes, it seems like a real hotbed for ancient civilization, as well as being established in this round of human history as a Freemasonic ritual, or I don't know, experiment, or haven. And both of these things speak to some natural qualities that certain people appreciate and others miss entirely. But if we were going to focus on the naming or the founding of Phoenix, or even the whole state of Arizona... These are loaded names that mean something to people in the know. 
How did they get them? Because you seem to be of the mindset that this was a very calculated Freemasonic operation from the start, right? Yeah. So I'm going to give a somewhat of a long answer here, but it's going to come back around the conversation when we get there later on to understand everything about Phoenix and why it is a hive of Freemasonry. You have to understand the ancient culture that used to be here. Anthropologists and archaeologists, they group Native Americans kind of into two groups, tribes after 1500 or Spanish European contact and cultures prior to that, because we really don't know a lot about them. And we just kind of separate them by artwork and burial rites, trading patterns and architecture. In the Phoenix area was a culture by the name of the Hohokam, H-O-H-O-K-A-M, Hohokam. And that's a Pima word, and that's a local tribe today. And the word Hohokam means those who were vanquished or those who were all used up. They were here between about 300 BC and 1425 AD. And they were known for doing primarily two things, one of which was digging canals. They constructed a canal system in the Phoenix Basin or the Salt River Valley of over 1,000 miles of canals, hmm. 200 miles of which were called trunk canals. They're about 70 feet across by 20 feet deep. Hmm. And if you're good at math, that's about 54.6 million cubic yards of earth. Those then fed out into feeder canals and distribution canals, another 800 miles of canals, about 20 feet across by 5 feet deep, and they irrigated 100,000 acres of land. Wow. Yeah, this isn't a bunch of spear chuck and hide wearing wagon burning savages. You got some serious engineering going on here. And this is where I first dove in. And this is the beginning of my journey. That's why I'm starting here. When the founding fathers got here, they found the canals were all covered in. The floods that had happened from 1425 since had just covered in all these canals. And that's when the Hohokam dispersed. But before we get there, know that these canals are dug to a perfect gradient of three to four feet of drop per mile. And the reason why that gradient is important because for the silt in the Salt River, it's the perfect gradient so that it doesn't, i.e., tear out the sides of the canals or it doesn't deposit and fill them up. They used weirs, which is a three quarter dam pointing upflow so it pressurizes the water to get it to go over a hill or pump it uphill a little bit. They utilized floodgates and they farmed fish in these canals. Their main crop was cotton, which mm -hmm. harkens to Egypt, if you're thinking along the lines here. Mm -hmm. In fact, today, the Pima Indians still produce a cotton called Pima cotton. If you've ever bought that, men's shirts and sheets are made out of Pima cotton, the second finest cotton on earth. And that's because the botanists came here in 1905, found this cotton that had been grown for 2,000 years in the Phoenix Basin, and hybrid it with an Egyptian strain, hmm. and they still grow it today. But to the point here, you have this ancient culture called the Hohokam who constructed over 1,000 miles of canals to a perfect gradient. They had no written language. They left no mathematics. They had no metallurgy skills. They had no wheel, and they had no pack animal. Supposedly, they dug these canals with sharp sticks and flat rocks, and they moved the dirt with baskets from yucca cactus fiber. Okay. Their other accomplishment was platform mounds. We know the biggest platform mound in the United States to be at Cahokia in southern Illinois. Mm -hmm. It has a footprint of about 14 acres. That's one acre bigger than the Pyramid of Giza, you know, the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. You don't see any platform mounds again until you get out to Phoenix. And when the founding fathers got here, they found 48 of them, three of which are still 
around. The rest have been demolished in the late 1800s, early 1900s because it was primary farming area. And they had to bulldoze them down and blade them down so they could plant. In fact, if you had a canal, if you had an ancient Hohokam canal or a platform out on your property, it was worth less money back in the day, the turn of the century, because you had to do work before you could plant it, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. But all this history just got bulldozed over and is still today underneath modern day Phoenix. You can go to parks in central Phoenix and south Phoenix and you go in the back there and you will find pottery shards all the time. All this history is very real and relevant today. When the founding fathers got here about 18, well, when they named Phoenix in 1868, there was a couple primary fathers that I've written about, a guy named Lord Daryl Dupa and a fellow by the name of Jack Swilling. We know Lord Dupa was a high-ranking Freemason, rumored to be a 32nd, but no one really has any proof of that. He came from a well-to-do family in, I think it was Wales, I believe. And he traveled the whole world, found his way to Phoenix, and made this his home. Him and Jack Swilling and a bunch of other founding fathers were sitting on some ruins, some Hohokam ruins, about a mile from the airport right now. It's called Pueblo Grande. It is a museum, and it talks about those platform mounds and all those canals I just told you about. Pretty cool. It's like five whole dollars to get in, and you get to walk up on top of this platform mound, one of three left. And they're trying to decide what to name our town, and our name was called Pumpkinville. That was our first name. Not a lot of people know that. It was Pumpkinville. Everyone hated it. We almost became known as Swilling after Jack. They almost named us Stonewall because most of the founding fathers were veterans from the War of Northern Aggression. We almost became known as Selena after the Salty River. The Salt River runs through Phoenix. But Lord Daryl Dupa stood up, and he says, gentlemen— this canal was constructed in an age now forgotten. Prehistoric cities lie in ruins all around you. A great ancient civilization once thrived in this valley. Let the new city arise from its ashes. Let it be called Phoenix. Damn. And that's how we got our name. Yeah. <laughs> it harkens right back to the Hohokam. We were named for this ancient culture. Pretty cool. He also went on to name the town of Tempe. You know, you've heard of Tempe, Arizona, right? Mm -hmm. ASU. Mm -hmm. Well, Tempe was named by Lord Daryl Dupa as well. And if you've ever gone to Greece, there is a valley called the Vale of Tempe or the Vale of Tempe. And it's not unlike Thermopylae. It's a, it's a strategic location. It's a gorge that runs through this rocky outcropping. And there's only one way through it. Well, the Greek believed that when the gods put on their mortal coils and came down, they spent their time hanging out in this beautiful, temperate, green place down there. Well, if you've ever been to Tempe, Arizona, there is a rock outcropping on both sides of the 202 freeway that goes through there, and it's called the Papago Mountains. And that is a conglomerate rock formation that rises out of the alluvial fill of the Phoenix Basin. And what that does is it pushes the water, the Salt River water, up to the surface there. So even in times of drought, back in the ancient days, there was always water right at Tempe, Arizona. Well, this spot in the 1800s reminded Lord Dupa of Tempe, Greece. So he named it Tempe, Arizona. Wow. If you travel the rest of our state, you will find Egyptian names from southern Arizona all the way, to the, especially the Grand Canyon. There's tons of Egyptian and Hindu names all through the Grand Canyon. The Masons really got here first, and they claimed it. They grabbed all the resources. They implemented their institutions. And today, they're still allocating these resources and managing them for whomever. I don't pretend to know all that, but 
that's kind of where it's at today. Very interesting, man. And I've interviewed so many guests and researchers about the idea that when it comes to the elite, they have this secret religion. So much of what they do has Egyptian or Babylonian symbolism. It's drenched all over the place. And they have a tendency to try to rebuild or recreate biblical events and locations. And it seems like Phoenix, Arizona and the surrounding area, there, you know, there might be something in that mix, making a, a city of modern Phoenicians. I mean, phonetically, they pay a lot of attention to those types of details, it seems. Yes, they do. If you follow Western civilization, we know that Samaria was the first, right? Mm-hmm. And from there, Egypt came out. And of course, you had the Minoans and the Phoenicians and all the other Jaredite cultures in there. From there, it went into Greece and then into Rome and then into England or Europe, right? And London actually means New Rome. I'm sure you know that. Mm-hmm. And then we came over to the United States and we have Washington, D.C. or the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. Columbia is the goddess Isis. And then we had the Western expansion across the United States. It's just one big continuation with the same religion, the same backbone, the same gods and goddesses with new names. But it's the same ceremony and religion and dogma all the way through. Once you learn how to read it, you can just go right back and just connect the dots all the way back to the beginning. You can even go back and I've studied other people's work and you can study the people in charge. They're the same people, the same families, you know, we all know that. (laughs) I just love how this local research you're doing ties into the big story. And speaking of weird secret beliefs of the elite, I was also really interested in Hunt's tomb. For people who aren't familiar, George W.P. Hunt was Arizona's first governor, and he had a pyramid tomb built in 1931 for his family and himself. You also note that this isn't an arbitrary thing because it's the exact same size as the capstone of the Great Pyramid was. Of course, it's not there now, but Dimensionally, it fits. And uh, he was a high-ranking Freemason who oversaw the dedication of every Masonic Lodge founded in Arizona when he was alive. So he really seems to know some stuff. And Egyptian mysteries and sacred geometry are always just a big part of that knowledge. I guess, what else do you find interesting about Hunt or his tomb? You know... I was there this week, and I, it's, it's just kind of on the way home, and I stop there and walk up there, sit next to this tomb, and I just think sometimes. And yeah, there is a pyramid. Technically, it is a capstone, as it measures the same size as the missing capstone from the top of the pyramid in Giza over there, Khufu's pyramid. George Wiley Paul Hunt from Huntsville, Missouri, came out here, seven-term governor of Arizona, state of Arizona, as well as, I believe, the territorial governor as well for a while. He came out here, and he was a whirlwind. He was a badass. They called him the walrus. He was liberal. I mean that in the Jeffersonian term liberal. He was a true liberal thinker, progressive with women's rights and voting and all that stuff. But he was a bona fide 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason, and he was all over the state of Arizona. He was a self-made man. If you get into his history, tough as nails, kind of a up-by-the-bootstrap kind of guy, educated himself. And if you go to Papago Park, right next to Tempe, Arizona, named after you know the Vale of Tempe in Greece, you will go a place called the Hole in the Rock. That's a park there at Papago Park. And near this ancient Hohokam archaeoastronomical calendar, which is just off to the north of the pyramid, you will find Hunt's tomb. 
and seven people are buried in that tomb with him, and it looks identical to the pyramid on the back of the $1 bill. In fact, it is the same angle. I just went up there this week to do some more research on it. I took measurements, and it is the same angle as the pyramid on the back of the $1 bill. That, of course, gets into the latitudinal lines and sacred geometry with the 72 squares, you know, bricks that are in that. It is Masonic all the way. And what's really frustrating as a researcher here, you can go there and hear the rangers and the park rangers say, oh, he was just a quirky Arizona guy and all this Egyptian stuff, all this Freemasonry, all this ancient occultic symbolism embedded into our very fabric of Arizona is dismissed every time as some quirky Western caricature, you know. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. It really is. But it's there for the whole world to see. It is white in color. It has four-inch by four-inch white tiles. Interestingly enough, the Egyptians, of course, covered their pyramids with that white limestone. You can see it up to 25 to 40 miles away. It's been reported. Governor Hunt covered his pyramid with white tiles. And the ancient Hohokam, which we just talked about, those 48 platform mounds, they believe they covered with a caliche, which is a white clay about three feet under the valley floor in Phoenix. And it's the remnant of an ancient ocean that was here years ago, the Western Interior Sea. It's really thick and it's hard to manipulate and move, but we know that they covered their platform mounds with this white clay as well to make it visible. So we have a lot of symbology going on here with tying together ancient Egypt with the modern-day Phoenix with the ancient Hohokam who lived in this valley. Once again, not just the pyramid itself, but the pyramid is three levels high. There's three main levels, including the stone pad it sits on, and that is the three degrees of Freemasonry, you know, the entered apprentice, the fellow craft, and the master mason. When you look at it from the air on Google Earth, it looks like steps. There's three steps as well. So this has truly been built in three dimensions on top of an ancient Hohokam PowerPoint, utilizing that ancient earth magic, the ancient earth energy. Right. And that was going to be one of my questions for you. I had pulled a lengthy paragraph off your website that you pretty much gave us all the good stuff out of. You're clearly recognizing some important details, but I'm interested in this ancient earth magic and the Hohokam. You write that it was astrological magic. And I'm just curious if you can elaborate on what you think the ancients were doing exactly magic wise, because I see the attraction to some of these energy points. I see the smoke, but I don't understand the fire fully. There seems to be differing opinions out there or at least some holes in the full picture. Can you tell us anything more? Being a tour guide, I spent a lot of time in Sedona and I understand the theories about the earth energy and the ley lines, the dragon lines. I have Navajo friends and Native American friends that talk about this roundabout, but I don't pretend to understand exactly how it works other than that there are points on the earth, obviously, that these sacred sites line up with. You can go to all the ancient megalithic sites, and there's, of course, video after video of other people's research from Peru to Egypt to Turkey, all over. And these sites are always there. When the Muslims come in and conquer the Christians, they'll tear down a church and build it right on top of that church. When the Christians go in and take over the pagans, they'll build their churches right on top of that. As the same thing with this continent. I don't believe that the European colonization of America was the first time other people were over here. It's obvious beyond the pale to me that we have been here 
over and over and over again. How many times? Who knows? But we know in about 10,000 years, everything goes back to dirt. Rust dissolves. <laughs> it's gone. You don't even know that it was there, except for the mines, the ancient mines, right? The pyramids, things built out of stone. That stuff sticks around. Right. And that's what we're finding across this country and Arizona today. You know, I worked at the Grand Canyon for a year and they find stuff in the Grand Canyon all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> but as far as Hunt goes, as far as the tomb goes, I've been going through the actual Phoenix itself and there are PowerPoints and there are buildings of significance at certain locations in the Phoenix Valley. We can get into all that later if you want as well. But this Papago Park is definitely a PowerPoint. The military has an underground base right there. I don't know if you know that or not. Mm, didn't know that. Yeah, on the west side of this park, it's bedrock. It's really hard conglomerate rock. And they go straight down. And a buddy of mine was a contractor there. He says it goes down seven or eight levels. Mm. And no one really in Phoenix knows that. But <laughs> yeah, why is the military there doing what they're doing? Is it just a hardened location? I don't know. But I can't find anything else about that. It's mum's the word on that, you know. Right. And there are just so many interesting little bullet points and red flags you can point to that there's just something in the periphery here in Phoenix that a lot of people seem to know about, but it's under wraps, it's in the shadows, and you probably have to be initiated to really get a handle on exactly why it's important and what those ancients were doing. I mean, obviously, that's a big question. I can't expect you to know, but I definitely noticed those same patterns of rebuilding on the Earth's energy grid and just a certain... Like even military bases internationally, we're told, are usually about controlling these places, banks, churches, yes, everything they can do. And let me ask you, I guess, a little more practical question that I've heard you talk about that I also just think is quite interesting. I never really thought about it much, but you've written about the natural environment in Arizona itself and how similar it is to places where civilizations tend to develop. Why is this template of a dry desert with a river running through it? so typical for civilizations as a starting place as opposed to areas that are more lush. Yeah, this occurred to me after my probably 400th tour down here, <laughs> <laughs> given Sonoran Desert ethnobotanical tours, and it really occurred to me one day, um, these people were thriving, these ancient Hohokam were thriving. First of all, there are six rivers that meet in Phoenix, right? We have the Gila River, the Salt River, the Verde, New River, Agua Fria, and the Hacienda. Some of those meet the other rivers, but they meet at a place called Tres Rios, which is about seven miles west of downtown Phoenix. So imagine hundreds of years ago, six riparian lush water systems flowing in from three directions into the valley where it gently rolls through and can be irrigated and farmed. Those were highways back in the day going out to the Great Plains of New Mexico, up to the Anasazi culture in the Four Corners area, to all the... Sinaguan, Aguafrian, Mugion, Salado cultures to the north, all the way up to the Grand Canyon, and then the Patayan culture in the Colorado Plateau to, to the west. Everything and anything flooding from anywhere in America down had to come through Phoenix. Anything from the Yucatan up had to come right through Phoenix. And it's evident from these canal systems, the amount of labor and time would have taken to have done them, that people have been here for a long time, probably the beginning. We look over to the Middle East. You have Iraq, you have Afghanistan, Pakistan, right? These deserts where we know that civilization started. Maybe not humanity, but civilization definitely. The first recorded civilization was Sumner, and that is modern-day Baghdad. 
And it's because, in my opinion, that it is a desert. You have a hot, dry climate with perennial water sources coming through. This allows for three to four planting seasons per year, especially if you have good grain like corn. You can get two plantings of that. Then your tubers, right, in the fall, if you've ever gardened, and your spring greens and your fall greens, you can farm. As the water comes in and floods your rivers, like the Nile, it redeposits more nutrients, right? And then it goes back down again. So you have a cycle. There are no tropical diseases because you're not in the jungle, right? So you don't have to fight that. Life is a little tougher in certain ways. And we see a lot of violence coming out of jungle cultures, right? All the way around the world, no matter what continent you're on. And they say it's because, the anthropologists say it's because life is easier. So people, you know, idle hand, the devil's work. They spend a lot of time fighting instead of surviving. And they put all their energy to that and they just develop violent cultures. Well, you don't see a lot of violent cultures developing in desert cultures. And because of that, you have more cooperative cultures like the Hopi, like the ancient Arab cultures. And you have no snow. You have no downtime. You don't have to plan and sit around for six months. You know, you can keep working. This allows for more food. This allows for more time that you start developing technologies and more religion and ideas and kind of just gets a jumpstart on civilization. I don't think it's a coincidence that we see these ancient technology in the canals and the platform mounds here in Phoenix that we see in the Middle East. Yeah, man. I just thought a lot of that was really fascinating because I never thought about it much either, especially the point you just made about uh, the scale of violence in jungle cultures versus something like ancient Egypt or these places that are more desert-like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely think there's a link between place and psyche that we are as much a part of our environment as our environment's a part of us. And I don't know, there's something there, but just the idea of there being less disease, milder winter, fewer dangerous animals, or at least better visibility, yeah. river travel for trade. trade. I think those are just great points. And uh, it's weird to think about Arizona in that context of being a match for all that. And then, you know, you get into reading between the lines of its history and maybe there's been multiple cultural layers, some, some of them obviously suppressed. And it all just forms a pretty interesting picture of the area when we generally write off the Southwest. You know, we don't think about the American Southwest generally as all that interesting, but it definitely seems to be. No, and I'll tell you what I tell people when I take them out into the desert on tour. We think of America starting with you know the old West starting with the Cowboys, but it didn't. Going backwards, we had the Americans, right? And then we had the Mexicans prior to that because it was all Mexico. And then it was España Nueva or New Spain, right? Prior to that, it was Pimeria Alta, which was the Pima Empire. Prior to that, it was the Hohokam for 1,600 years. Prior to that, it was the archaic cultures and the basket weaving cultures. We know prior to that, it was the Clovis cultures. That's about as far as we can really find stuff going back on. But when you get into the stories of Atlantis and Plato and Aristotle, they talk about faraway lands. When you talk about more modern, like the Ming dynasty, right? Ming sent out the Starfleet and he sent, what, 300 ships forward, Hmm. I believe. And two didn't come back for about five years. They finally came back and said, we discovered this great, huge land off to the east. And we got off the ships and went inland. And there was this huge canyon we couldn't get to the bottom of. It's massive, unfathomable. That's documented. It could only be the Grand Canyon, you know? 
when I spent time with a medicine man by the name of Man, M-A-N-N, up on the Wallapai Indian Reservation years ago, I got to sit up on a mountaintop with him for about eight hours and just listen to him. And he said that he was hunting bears, a boy, sometime in the 1930s. And he was down them canyons. It's a tributary coming into the Grand Canyon. He said he took refuge in a cave and he began finding symbols, didn't know what they were. Years later, he found out they were Chinese. He went back and wrote them all down. And there's ancient Chinese written in these cave systems all through the Grand Canyon. He says, we all know about them. They're all there. He says, Chinese were here prior to the Americans, prior to the Spanish, <laughs> without a doubt. He speaks with matter of factly. I think people have been coming here for a long time. Well, not only just coming there, but making your way to some remote natural beauty and then feeling the need to carve something in it is a very human thing to do if you've ever been anywhere remote or unique. Kind of a sad thing, really, but at least in this context, it's a clue to the truth. And the fact that someone would do that at any time depth is very easy for me to believe. It just makes sense. Yeah, when you go through and you you kind of study European colonization, we're all taught in school that they thought the world was flat, right? And they took a big chance coming over here. BS, you know, absolute BS. The Moors knew that it was round. They knew it was over here. Ponce de Leon sailed with the Moors, and he knew that there was a spring over here. We'll get into that later. But everyone knew, the Chinese knew that the earth was round, and they came over. And sorry to you flat earthers out there. <laughs> I, I do respect your opinion. You have great arguments, by the way. But Well, that's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When we came over here, I have a sneaky suspicion that these ancient societies and the monarchy knew. They knew monarchy was changing and the next phase was being laid out. They got here first. They staked their claim and they made their Western expansion and claimed all this territory from Arizona. I mean, all of it. The whole entire country was taken by Masons. Hmm. I don't know if you know this, but everyone who died at the Alamo, they're all Freemasons. No. Oh. They found Billy the Kid's apron a couple years back. Pat Garrett was a Mason. All these Western men were Masons. They all came out. Buffalo Bill Cody was a Mason. The history of the Southwest and Masonry, and further to my point, the conquering and the acquisition and managing of the resources, and that's what this is all about. It's the control of the resources, and that's where my research ties into the, all this ancient history. They're still here in Phoenix and they're laying out their fingerprints all over. And they manage the insurance companies and they manage the water, SRP, the Salt River Project, and the Colorado River Pact, because water is life out yeah. here. They manage the politics, all of it, the direction, where the new highways are going to go, all these PowerPoints. And they put their little their little shrines up everywhere they can to mark their territory, right out in the open for those who have the eyes to see. Yeah, And it's all over. Absolutely. Resource management, something we take for granted because we get water piped into our house. So we just don't really think about it all that much. But I live in San Diego where they're fining people for watering their lawn. Meanwhile, I drive down the highway and I see just these massive big agri farms where they're just watering dirt or it's watering the highway road like they're wasting gallons. And so it's all about, well, you regular people need to conserve, but we can't even touch the waste that agricultural corporations are doing and of course they get a free pass <laughs> so it's just an interesting little side note but this is really awesome and i'm sure you have just many many personal anecdotes that are fascinating to someone like me and to switch gears just a bit i like this one section of your bio where you say for a while you rode for a local ranch working cattle the old way and teamed up with an old prospector to explore the surrounding mountains and valleys 
Many afternoons were spent in trading posts listening to first-hand accounts of ruins, lost mines, secret springs, and the caves deep in the desert. You then headed into the desert and found those places and more. I mean, wow, man. I'm always particularly interested in stories of caves and underground cities, and they pop up all over the Southwest. There's a pretty famous... Fortean story of finding the ruins of an ancient underground city of giants in Death Valley, for example. Sure. But I'm curious what you could tell us about lost mines or caves in that area that you find most interesting or have tried to find yourself. So when I was living in Wikiup at 18, I met up with an old prospect by the name of Jim Miller. I mean, he was just a modern day shady pirate of a guy. You know, that proverbial man with a pickaxe and the mule wandering out of the desert yeah that was this dude he had a limp if, if he had a patch it'd be pretty, he actually he did have a fake eye so you know this was him and we just clicked he was a cool cat he was into prospecting he knew carlos castaneda from hmm. california he'd known him for 10 years and worked with him over there so he had all these crazy stories and for an 18 year old boy that was awesome i was studying botany at the time and he was into prospecting he had a perpetual gold fever so we teamed up and I would go help him find mineral in the desert because certain plants grow where certain minerals are heavier, right? You know, copper, you're going to find more junipers. You're going to find ocotillo cactus over limestone deposits, which is indicative of caves, on and on and on. So we teamed up doing all that. There were some cowboys, old Mexican cowboys have been up in that area forever and they'd tell me about these spots back in the desert where these caves and cavettes and I went back there. We found these Indian burial grounds. We found places where people don't go. People think that everything's been found out here in the desert. You know, Greg, if you think about it, probably, oh, what percentage of people do you say get out here and walk around in the Arizona Southwest in the backcountry? Oh, man. Almost none, because I just recently drove to and from Vegas, and I know it's obviously not the same, but everywhere you look, you just think, Go 500 feet off this road, and who knows the last time a person actually stood there. Right. We just drive on these two-lane highways. We don't ever walk out even 100 feet from that road. Yeah, I'd say probably 20, 30% of the U.S. population is healthy enough to go backpacking in this (laughs) off-trail, no-trail, rugged stuff. Out of them, probably 2% have the inclination to do so, and out of them, probably almost none of them know what they're looking at once they get out there because they're just out there for recreation, you know, watching the birds and, you know, the rocks. They're not looking for ruin systems or ancient markings or how it all plays in line with the ancient history and the patterns of migration. So if you go out there looking for the right things, you're going to find stuff. It's Mm -hmm. out there right now, just laying there waiting for someone to connect those dots. Coronado, I'm sorry, not Coronado, Cortez came up through the big Sandy Valley. That's where Wikiup's at. A friend of mine showed me years ago, Jimmy, I'm not going to give his last name. I don't want his family harassed, but he pulled out these beads and he showed me these strings of beads that he had and they were a clay, a hardened clay. And here's where we go down the rabbit hole, partner. Yeah. I saw these beads firsthand. I touched them. I looked at them for a couple hours while we made biscuits and bacon and sat there and talked. Come to find out later, he dies. And I tried to track these beads down last year. And I talked to his buddy and I get a hold of him. He says, yeah, man, you know, we, we didn't know about those beads. He'd found them in a cave hmm. about 12 miles north of Wiki up off to the side of the highway there. He said he found them in the 1970s and they had these little etchings all around them. They weren't smooth. They had etchings. We didn't know what the writing were. That's why he had showed me because he knew that I studied ancient cultures at that time. Come to find out, 
they took him to an expert and they were Polynesian. Wow. Polynesian. That's what the guy told him. He says, these are without a doubt Polynesian. Now, back in the late 70s, he had contacted the Smithsonian Institute and told them that he had them and he had mailed them over there. He got a phone call about two weeks later saying, you got any more of these? He's like, nope. You know, of course he had hundreds more. And he said, what is it? And he said, well, we don't know yet, but we're just going to hang on to these. If you find any more, you let us know. We're just going to keep these. Ah. So they wouldn't even give them back. They wouldn't tell them. Hmm. But they were Polynesian. When they took him in again, the guy looked into the grooves in the clay and they found micro etchings in the groove wow. of this Polynesian wow. language. Yeah. And that's one thing that we find up there in Wikiup. You know, people have, men have their proverbial man caves. I have a cave cave, you know, I go to my cave cave <laughs> up there and it's got a spring in the back of it. No one ever goes back there. I got some initials from old cowboy from the 1920s, I think on the wall, but it's an ancient Patayan migration camp when they came through from the Colorado Delta up to the Prescott area. You know, I know what it is. I haven't dug down, but it's there. There's stuff all through there. And it's amazing. I discovered a couple years ago, some pictographs on the ceiling of a cave, not far from Wikiup. And I took the photos to an expert on pictographs and petroglyphs of specifically Arizona cultures. And he could not contain himself, wanted me to take him out there. He's written three books on, you know, this stuff, but we could never come to an agreement as to naming rights or anything else. He just wanted to grab the glory of it. And I'm working on a deal to take an expedition out there currently. But he says they're more than likely Patayan. And if they are, they're the only ones in existence. So there's stuff out there, man, all over the desert. I'm Kurt, anyone listening to this, go on Google Earth, go 50 mile radius of your home and start exploring. You're going to find stuff, man. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm with you. And I absolutely used to have this attitude that everything's been discovered and there's no great oh. mysteries. And that is so, so untrue. And nobody's spotlight is on ancient American cultures for the most part. I think there's malls built right next to mounds and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like we've probably covered a lot of it, but I think there's still a lot out there all across America. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt there is. You know, it's like when we gave that worthless strip of land to the Navajos years and years ago, then they find out there's uranium and coal under it, right? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not so worthless anymore. Now, what are we going to discover 100 years from now when we have equipment to tap into dark matter or energy where there's forces around us at these energy spots that are going to be revalued? You know, that's what I think about when I walk by these ancient sites. Right. So let me ask you about these stories of ancient giants or this uh, oh, this cannibalistic yeah. tribe of red-haired giants that some Native American tribes have legends of. Do you think there is truth to that? Again, the Smithsonian comes up in those stories, not returning the bones that were sent to them. So that was kind of a interesting correlation there. But what are your thoughts on those stories? So giants are one of my favorite topics. Of course, I'll never be a Stephen Quayle. He writes amazing information about it, but not all of it. There's a lot of it he misses because he can't, you know, get to everything. I've asked every one of my Native American friends, Apaches, Hopi, Navajo, Paiute, every one of them without fail talk about giants. Not only the fact that they were cannibals and hunted humans, but that sometimes they came from those giants as well. And it is ubiquitous, just like Genesis 6 4 talks about the creation story. Those giants are always tied to a flood story. 
There's a story I wrote about Ho'ok, H-O apostrophe O-K, down here on the Gila River with the Gila people. There's Keho, which is a modern-day story of a so-called alleged giant around the Hoover Dam that they found the bones, right? Sometime in, I believe, the 50s. Mm. There's the red-haired giants up in the Lovelock Cave in Nevada. The Navajos have the stories of the twin giants, right? And the, I'm sorry, of the giants and the twins that kill them. The Apaches called the giants the Gwindipids, and they lived in the Superstition Mountains just east of Phoenix, Arizona. In fact, if you ever come to the valley and you go out towards Apache Junction into the Superstitions, you'll see all these rock spires coming up on the west side. Well, they believe that those are the giants that got caught by the water, couldn't get up, and they turned to stone, which kind of ties into the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah when his wife turns around and turns to a pillar of ash or a salt pillar. You see these congruences and these metaphors through these ancient Native American stories and the biblical ones. And the biblical one is the one I, you know, being a European, I know those stories. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they go into all the other creation stories as well. We know that the Vedics talk about them in India, right? Ancient Ireland, the Gaelics, the pagans talk about it. Ancient England has stories of giants. It's just ubiquitous. And here in the Southwest, it's no different. A couple commonalities between all these stories is that there's a woman who goes off on her own and she's forced or raped in the desert and comes back and nine months later gives birth to a large child. I'll just kind of retell the story of Ho'ok for you here. Sure. This takes place not far from Santan, which is kind of its own town, but it can be considered a suburb of Phoenix off to the southeast. The Santan Mountains and the Gila Indian tribe out there. A woman goes out, gets violated, gives birth to a girl, and the girl is big, and she bites a lot, and she's violent and cries a lot. And as she grows older, you know, she starts developing these paws, like feet, like paws of a dog or an animal, and she has claws on her hand, not nails. And the other boys won't play with her and the girls won't play with her. So she joins the hunting parties with the men and she hunts with the men for a couple of years. And after a while, the men are like, damn, she's mean. You know, mm -hmm. she's like chasing down rabbits and ripping them apart with her teeth. And, and she's fighting with the men and she killed a man once and no more. She ain't allowed to hunt with us anymore. She's out of control. <laughs> so they kick her out of the tribe and she goes to live in a cave in the Santan Mountains. I know right where the cave's at. I haven't been there yet because it's on the Indian res and I don't know any, any Gila natives take me out there but it's there and there's a big effigy by the way made in rocks at the base of this cave and that's for her it's still there today this big rock design at the bottom of this cave it's still out there but she goes to live in this cave and then they notice you know months later that all the deer are disappearing and then the children start disappearing mm -hmm. and they realize that she has this insatiable appetite and hunger and they know what's going on so they go to the medicine man and say what are we going to do and they say, let's throw a big party for her and we have to kill her somehow. So let's get her drunk. So anyway, the story goes on, but they bring her to the festival and for four days, they give her alcohol, fermented cactus fruit wine, and they dance, and they make her exhausted and they carry her back to her cave and they stick her in this cave and they pile it up with mesquite and wood and they light it on fire and she screams as she's dying and she's dead. The story goes on from there that her spirit comes out of her body and cracks the top of the cave and there, there is a crack in the rock right there and it shoots into a bird and the bird comes down and lands in a pot of beans and some medicine man eats the beans. So it's possession. The story goes on to possession and they have to go to the top of South Mountain in South Phoenix and get a medicine man to come down because that's where the medicine men live and South Mountain's its own thing as well. 
but they eventually get rid of the spirit of Ho'ok and she no longer torments them. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but if you start studying Native American stories, mythology, you know where the lines are drawn between the morals, right? And yeah, yeah. the actual event, kind of like the Bible with the parables and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I love those kind of stories. And I just love the tales of giants. It seems so far-fetched, but I think there's enough there to you know, put it in the true column. And I took a research tour of Armenia with Graham Hancock a couple of years ago. It was like two weeks. And the local researchers would talk about giants and places where bones were found. And Graham would roll his eyes and say he wasn't interested in those giant stories, didn't believe them. Really? And I would always pry a little bit more. I'd be like, eh, you know, I'd get the translator. Hey, can you ask Vaskin a little more about that giant thing? Like, and I'd get a few more sentences. And I just love to throw that out there because these local Armenian researchers have almost zero reach, but they also have a lot of fascinating stuff they found in the area. But uh, to go back to that section of your bio that I read, in that paragraph, you mentioned Secret Springs, and I'm curious if this is a reference to Castle Hot Springs or something else. No, it's there's other springs out there on maps. And you have to keep in mind that I've walked and backpacked miles and miles and miles of desert. And there's something mystical and literally spiritual and sacred about water in the desert. There are springs that are not on maps out there, hmm. secret springs that are coming out of an old pipe, you know, that some cowboy stuck in the ground or that are underground and don't surface. And you can go under these caves and find them. There are secret springs in the desert. And that's what I was talking about. There was a half-breed, Eddie Benegas, half-Mexican cowboy out there Back then, I used to brew beer, and he was a bit of a imbiber. He would come over, and I would give him my homebrew, and he would tell me these ancient stories and all the secrets of the desert out there. Oh, it was a pretty yeah. good arrangement. Oh, yeah. It was great. And he told me, he said, get your maps out, and we'd sit there and have a couple of brews, and he would tell me where these ancient places were. I was lucky. I was lucky to have him there. But yeah, they're out there. Castle Hot Springs is another story. Yes. It's at the base of the Bradshaw Mountains. It is the first territorial capital of Arizona before it started rolling around. It's a very powerful spot. It's known as the healing springs to the Yavapai as well as the Apache. Even in times of war, people were granted pass to go in there. In more modern day times when the colonization happened, the governors and the wealthy, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers would come to Arizona. They would hang out there in these springs. Later on, JFK came there and he healed up, right? Mm. Lots of famous people, wealthy people have come from around the world to sit in these springs. Castle Hot Springs is known as the deepest rock water in Arizona that we know of. It's at least 7,000 feet deep. It comes out, I want to say, it's, I can't remember what the article years ago, but it was like 120 degrees, I think. Right. And there's three pools and each pool is a little bit cooler. They had built the capital of Arizona right there. And when the train came through Wickenburg, there was a stagecoach that would run up there into those mountains to where that was. They used to hang people from the front steps of this territorial capital. Mm -hmm. It was the governor's office and it was the hanging tree and it was the whole, you know, business. It was everything. It was kind of a cool little piece of history. It was bought out by a number of different people through the years. Arizona State University bought it. And as of last year, I think it just changed hands again. I haven't looked at who's got it, but they're talking of opening it back up for uh, memberships and to go in there and sit in the springs and heal. So this caught my attention because I had been studying the ancient colonization 
of our country and Ponce de Leon, right? And the fountain of youth. Well, this also ties into a guy who was doing a lot of work here in the 70s on the monoatomic gold. Yeah. Have you heard of Well, that whole thing started right here in Phoenix. He was a farmer to the Southwest and he had, was trying to figure out how to chemically get rid of the alkalinity on his soil. He's pouring chemicals on his soil and he takes in the soil to get assay and he finds this new element, right? It, it intrigues him. He spends hundreds of thousands of dollars and he buys a spectrometer and discovers a new element, what he calls monoatomic gold. When he hits it at a certain frequency for the burnoff, it leaves the dimension. It disappears completely. Then it reappears again. Well, while this is happening, he's patenting it. He's forming his own, dare I say, religion. But he's still out there. You can look up monoatomic gold and get into all the research yourself. It's quite copious. It's exhaustive, to tell you the truth. But what he's saying is that this monoatomic gold is what bridges the synapses in the brain, kind of like Spice on that movie Dune. You remember the old sci-fi Dune? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it's just like Spice and that the natives would eat it and the medicine men would eat it. He's harkened it back to ancient Egypt with Moses and Mount Sinai and that they used to manufacture it there. Well, I met a guy in Florida who said, yeah, well, the fountain of youth down here in Florida, what it is, is you have this gold washing off of the mainland. It hits the limestone bed and it goes down deep in those caverns and it becomes pressurized. So all this heavy metal sinks way, 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 way down there. And you have the nutritious salts coming in off the ocean and all this cocktail getting pressurized underground for who knows how long and then coming up in an artesian spring. So a natural engine or a natural foundry, if you will, that creates this monoatomic gold underground through the salts and the limestone, the nutritious soils, the heat and the pressure, and then coming up through an artesian spring. Well, to tie this back to Arizona here, the Bradshaw Mountains are the most mineralized mountain range in the United States of America, it's been told. There's more heavy metals, gold, silver, and other heavy metals around that mountain than anywhere else, the concentration, only it's not concentrated enough to actually dig it out. It's all spread out. Well, if you have on the southern end of that, right at the bottom of that drainage, a spring coming up, what's the chances of those heavy metals going down and pressurizing 7,000 feet and coming up? We know there's a healing spring there that's been revered by all Native Americans in ancient times. We know that the wealthy and the elite came here, and the first thing they did in Arizona was build a territorial capital on the spring. There's something to it. you know. I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. Money and wealth and power does not gravitate arbitrarily. They seek out power, and they take the good stuff. And if they came right here when they first got to Arizona, there's a reason for it. You know, We wouldn't know until 1970s about the monoatomic gold, but I think that's the science underneath it. And that's for someone else to go through and figure out. <laughs> I can't be an expert in everything, but I can connect enough dots to tell you there's something there. Absolutely, man. We have talked on the show about alchemy and the idea of ormus. I think that's another term people use for this stuff. And you mentioned yes. that popping into another dimension. That's exactly how they describe this stuff. Yep. There's a documentary out there called All the Gold You Can Eat, where a guy talks to five or six different older gentlemen who have spent their lives keeping this secret or working on this in secret. And it's fascinating. I mean, there's even some suggestion that the large corporations know this stuff and they have highly guarded secret 
bunkers where they're actually making the things that they're saying are artificially scarce. I mean, who knows? You can imagine that that would just be something that would be one of the biggest secrets you'd want to keep. And in terms of water, yeah, I absolutely think water has healing properties in certain conditions. Maybe natural sites did give ancient people insight into this, and there's techniques probably to amplify it further. It's Mm -hmm. no surprise that our modern water supply is such shit quality, and this information is so suppressed. And uh, as a side note, this was something that I thought was pretty damn interesting, too, from your article about Castle Hot Springs. David Copperfield has claimed to have discovered a fountain of youth on one of his 11 islands purchased in 2006 for $50 million. To quote Mr. Copperfield, I've discovered a true phenomenon. You can take dead leaves. They come in contact with the water and become full of life again. Mm -hmm. Bugs or insects that are near death come in contact with the water and they'll fly away. It's an amazing thing. Very, very exciting. He also states, we found this liquid that in its simple stages can actually do miraculous things. Brown leaves turn green. It is natural. Simple organisms that are near death are rejuvenated. So we don't know about the effects on humans, but we're doing research and development. I mean, that sounds like this kind of uh, monoatomic gold ormus fluid. I mean, it all ties into ether physics and this all, all this stuff I think is suppressed and also synergistic, like you mentioned earlier. It all ties in together. And to point out, David Copperfield's islands aren't that far from Florida. It's right there, right? It's right off the coast there. It's like I said early on, everything eventually ties in together at some point. It's really hard to stay on topic <laughs> when you talk about this stuff because the giants go into the model atomic, which goes, it just, it all ties together. So, no, it's fascinating. It's, it's really amazing stuff. And to talk about another ancient site that's somewhat of a mystery, we've all probably heard about the Nazca lines, these giant animals and humanoid figure outlines that were made to be seen from the sky, which begs the question, why would a civilization hundreds or thousands of years before conventional air travel put so much energy into building things you can only see from the sky? Well, Arizona actually has a site that's quite similar, doesn't it? It does. They're called the Blythe Intaglios. That's the name for them. They're right outside of Blythe, California, on the California side there. But there are several of them along the Gila River all the way into the Phoenix area, if you know where to look. They don't like talking about them. The archaeologists don't want people out there messing with them. They're made the exact same way. There is a tarnished patina rock on the desert floor that's just been baked there for millions of years. And they moved that rock aside and uncovered the lighter rock underneath it. And these designs that whomever made, we don't know who made them, are a horse or dog-like creature. There's one of a woman with really, really long arms. There's another one of someone spearing a fish. And there's other ones there as well. There's also the one, like I mentioned just a minute ago, with Ho Oak. The rocks are laid out. There's some, if I understand, along the Gila River, not far from Gila Bend, out in the desert along the river as well. So they're all out there. To me, it would make sense that the Nazcas or maybe someone who was there with them migrated up. They're nowhere near as big and as perfect and intricate as the ones in Nazca, but they are here. It's kind of like it would be to the Nazca lines what the later pyramids were in Egypt to the Great Pyramid, right? They just weren't quite as awesome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They came after, no doubt. But yeah, they're here. 
I saw the pictures that you put up of them. They're pretty impressive. I mean, a lot of people probably see these Nazca lines on TV and they're like, man, I wish I could go there. Meanwhile, you're probably just a few states over from something very, very similar. It's just not on television. So you didn't know about it. It's just kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, and they'd gone through and they asked these natives, they said, so why did you guys build this? And that's Mojave country. And they're like, we didn't make it. They were here when we got here. You know, (laughs) I love that kind of stuff. (laughs) You know, I've asked a lot of guests about insight from Native American tribes because it is so uh, kept close to the chest for them. They don't really give a lot of the secrets out. And why would they? You know, yeah. you know, we don't really deserve them in a lot of cases. But there are people like yourself who do make friends with them and sometimes get great insight from them when they open up a little bit. I'm just curious, broadly speaking, if uh, you could talk to us a little bit more about that kind of thing, because it's just like, where else are we going to learn this stuff? Yeah, when you're talking with natives, first of all, they're like everyone else. They're just human. They're just people. Right. They know what they know. Europeans especially have some, they think they're like magical creatures or something. No, they're thin-skinned mammals with opposable thumbs, just like (laughs) us. And they have cell phones and drive Chevy trucks. But they have something else. They have an ancient history that they don't want to be corrupted. Right. You know, when I talk to my Apache friend, Albert, he's full-blooded Mescalera. He'll tell me stories of, you know, what his grandfather told him. But they only know what they know. Some natives are more willing to talk about this stuff. Others aren't. I've written a ton about skinwalkers. And I have a gentleman I've been in touch with from the res. And he's open about skinwalkers. One of the only natives I've ever known who is. Most of them will not. It's just got to be courteous and you have to know when to stop asking questions and you have to ask a question a certain way without being intrusive. And it's just respect and politeness. But if you let them tell you what they want to tell you, and if you know how to listen, you'll really start picking stuff up, if that makes any sense. It does. You know, I have a really good friend who's half Paiute I grew up with in Wikiup, and we did a lot of hunting together. And he taught me, you know, he told me a little bit more than the average person than he would anyone else. When I was at the Grand Canyon, I guided with a Hopi. We lived in the same home for about a year. We were bunk mates right next door. So we would, you know, grab a bottle of wine and we'd all sit there and talk. And of course, we're all interested in what he had to say. And he would just weave the stories and the tales of his people. He was Coyote clan. So he was a warrior. He was in the Marine Corps. You know, he ties his ancient duty as the Coyote clan into the modern day life. So he went to the Marines and he went into battle and came back and he's now a guide at the Grand Canyon. They will tell you all kinds of really cool stuff. And if you ask, you know, if they can tell you, they will. If they say, I don't talk about that. okay, it's cool. You don't. Mm -hmm. But they generally won't volunteer a lot of information. And they themselves don't put it into a context that you and I are discussing now. They might know the story, right? But they don't know what it means in relation to the ancient Bible or the metaphysics that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they don't have all the pieces either. Well, man, this has been really interesting. A lot of fun. I know there's so much more to talk about. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. I'd love to. Great. Until then, do remind the people where to find your website and any other work you got going on. I got my website. I'm a one-man show. It is thephoenixenigma.com, thephoenixenigma.com. Of course, I got a Patreon there because I'm just, if you want to support my work, please, I could really use it. Other than I'm not going to beg for money, but if you would like to support it, that is there as well. I would appreciate it if you do. 
I have a YouTube channel where I cover the majority of my political deoccultings and the website, even though it's been more political, I am gearing back into the Phoenix area as of recently. There's a lot of stuff I've been working on behind the scenes and some of it's come to come to fruition. My book should be out early next year or maybe mid next year. I have to get it edited and it's going to be concentrating on the fingerprints of masonry in the Phoenix area. And that's all it's going to be about going deep into what we didn't talk a lot about today. If you want to do another show on that, by all means, give me a call and we can talk about just that. Yeah. When the book launches, we should. Yeah. It's going to be a book dedicated to just that. And it's fascinating stuff, but, and then you're on my website. I throw in some stuff, you know, some fun stuff about cactus every once in a while, just stuff that interests me being a botanist and whatnot. Um, so that's my work. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. Well, it is a great website. And in the interest of trying to coax out some support. Do you have any Patreon specific content for those people that do support you financially? I will. I just opened my Patreon a few weeks ago. So it's brand new and I will be making one video a month for just them. You know, I got a couple, I don't have too many tiers. I wanted to make it really simple. I think I got $3, $5 and a $10 and maybe an advertising one for 60 bucks a month. If you got something you want to sell, put an ad on my website for 60 bucks, leave it there. We'll work it out. Give me a call. We need to help each other out in this genre, you know? Yes, I agree. I agree. Well, awesome. Again, fascinating stuff. I do wish I had a guy like you in every weird city across America. <laughs> Major respect for doing this work, and I hope you keep it up. Thanks for taking the time to go over some of it and take care out there. Well, thank you for your time today. I do appreciate it. You got it. Hey, oh, higher side chatters back in the saddle. Another one on the books. Corey Daniel with the fire of a thousand suns. I don't really know what I'm saying, guys, but I thought that was a fucking pretty solid show, if you ask me. When I found the Phoenix Enigma website, I saw more than enough to know we could have a good time. Thankfully, Corey actually got back to me, and we were able to forge a pretty fun path through his work. And he's a pretty good speaker for not having done very many interviews. Hopefully, he's going to get more requests now, because I'm sure there are a decent amount of podcast hosts listening who are going to want to pick his brain. And that's great. I've lived in some rural areas, but nothing as barren as the Arizona desert. And I just think it's really impressive that he has cultivated all this knowledge, spent time with people even less connected to society, and just heard their tales, old ranchers and prospectors. These are the sorts of insights that I would love to dig out of obscurity and broadcast to all you guys. I just get the special tingle from that. I don't know why. But what I was getting at is that even though I had a lot of questions and material fleshed out, I started to feel like getting a lot more open-ended because these little side stories and anecdotes tended to come out a bit more. And that is, to me, one of those in-the-moment things you got to go with because you're not going to get it next time. I can always pull up his articles again if we have another show. I wanted to follow a few more of those personal leads. And I think there are a lot of small town stories, so to speak, that die out because they aren't told. Luckily, the technology makes it possible for us to reach those remote areas before it slowly kills us. I thought this episode fit nicely with Michael Wan of the Susquehanna River Alchemy episode and Ross Ben with the Philadelphia Ben Franklin show, as I said in the beginning. And this was obviously a bit broader than the description of some overarching ritual, but I still feel like we got our hands all over the elephant. 
There's definitely more meat on the esoteric Freemasonic Phoenix bone. But now I do feel like Phoenix is a pretty special place to those settlement sorcerers. And it's not a city that was on my radar really at all. I just can't imagine soaking up all this knowledge that he has, largely in isolation. For me, it's just nice to be able to appreciate and then amplify that. And I hope you were into it too. I can't imagine you wouldn't be if you're a THC fan. I'm not so sure about the jungle cultures versus desert cultures and violence thing, the more I think about it though. Because like, look at the Middle East. (laughs) That's pretty violent. Look at shamanism in the Amazon. I know that's just an element of culture, but it has to create a little bit of a peaceful environment. I really just don't know enough about that to be weighing in or speculating. But when Corey brought it up, I thought it was an interesting concept. I definitely could understand how the environment would have such an effect on the psyche. I looked up some articles that said that it's just the more warmer it is, the more violent a culture is. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, maybe it's just more general irritation. The heat is irritating, but so are the bugs of the jungle that you wouldn't get in the desert. You know, give me a week of that and I'd be pretty ready to rip somebody's head off. I don't know. But in uh, THC news, I am sorry for the large gap in shows. I had two on the calendar that had to be pushed back a couple weeks. So I was kind of just waiting around for the next batter in the lineup which wouldn't really be so bad, but then the editor was on vacation and he needed a couple of days to actually do the job once he got back. So a couple days for A and B and then C, it starts to stack up and then you're 10 days into the month and the whole goddamn podcast goes down on iTunes and then you got to rush in to put out that fire, which means taking that line, a less Christian coast-to-coast hosted by a more mellow Alex Jones had to take that out of the description And I think just that keyword, Alex Jones, honestly had something to do with it. But it's hard to say because Apple never gave me any information at all. They just flipped the switch off. I pruned up my podcast description and they flipped it back on. And kudos to our shadowy anonymous podcast editor because he got this back to me a bit faster than expected. He clearly busted his ass. So respect. And I'm confident we're back on track now. It's just getting tougher to keep up when running such a lean operation. But there are many ways to make sure you get notified when a new episode comes out so you don't have to keep checking and checking and rechecking. Hopefully you use a podcast catcher app. That does it all for you. Or just follow me on Facebook or Twitter. I almost never say that because I really don't care if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter. I don't even say very much there except to announce new episodes. So if that's what you want, that's where you'll get it. And for plus, you can actually click on the website's podcast player and set up email notifications. That seems to be a pretty convenient thing that people have liked doing if they need that. I just like to make sure everybody knows what's available, even if you don't take advantage of it. Because I did get several emails the past few weeks with plus questions. In case there are other people out there with questions of their own, if you go to the HiresideChatsPlus.com, there is a Help Frequently Asked Questions page. Everyone who's even halfway interested in Plus should just read that. It's everything you're going to want to know. Step-by-step photo instructions for plugging Plus into apps on both Android and Apple phones. 
you really don't have to ever go to the website if you just plug in the plus feed into one of these apps like you would any other podcast podcast addict is the one that i use most on android it never fails <laughs> i'm sorry if you already know this stuff but you know you get half a dozen emails and you start thinking yeah i never really communicate these things i just kind of assume people will figure it out but some don't and then they hesitate to become plus members because of these sorts of technological hurdles and the ambiguity and the gray area but you can also sign up for the patreon it is the same thing but if you're familiar with Patreon, then you might feel that it is more user-friendly. Don't let some uncertainty or technological hurdle stop you from becoming a Plus member or enjoying the second hour of all these great interviews. You know, your iTunes goes down. Sure, it might have been somewhat technical rather than content-related, but we also got a content strike on YouTube again for episode 69, some show way back in the beginning when I was still numbering them. These things happen and I do have to wonder, like, am I going to be able to do this show in 20 years? Maybe I should put a little more energy and fuel into the pitch for the premium version. And I know everybody's probably wondering what was in this plus show. Well, I'm going to tell you, we talked about Arizona's own Nazca lines. Did you know that? Did you know Arizona had a Nazca lines type thing? <laughs> the Blythe Intaglios. How about that? Google that. We also talked about the secrets and rumors of the Grand Canyon, Charles Dutton, the U.S. Reclamation Act, Seth Tanner and the Forbidden Cave Story, the Sedona Vortexes, deocculting John McCain's Freemasonic funeral ritual, now, that was interesting. There's a lot of weird things about McCain's funeral. Of course, he was an Arizona senator and a lot of Masonic numbers coming up and all kinds of stuff. Did he even really die? I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> we also talked about Trump, magic, and the Jesuits, as well as the Black Eye Club. Did you know that a ton of politicians and actors and just general oligarchs have had some pretty brutal black eyes and no real answer for them. It's interesting. And for people who did hear the Plus Show, it was nice to talk to someone who can say, yeah, some weird stuff is going on with Trump. He's doing some moon magic stuff. He's clearly got some esoteric advisors, etc. Without jumping on the Trump Q bandwagon. You know, I think we did all right with that. I think we towed that line, as opposed to a few weeks ago. <laughs> Again, Plus people, they're the only ones who know what I'm talking about. And that's okay with me. Also, in today's plus show, that little anecdote about the glass company working on military contracts, harnessing new properties of light. Hmm. That was pretty damn interesting. See, I don't always need an author promoting a new book. Sometimes people just out in the world get little breadcrumbs to really out their stuff. And that's, that's, that's what I want those open lines to be. You know, these joint sessions we're doing... Give me your insights, your stories, the little glimpses and clues that you've gotten at the Big Beast. Last time I felt like it was a little more about promoting people and fighting over dietary choices. Although the Unabomber caller was pretty damn compelling. More of that. And remember the next joint session where I sit here, smoke and drink, and answer your Skype calls, or Zoom calls technically, will be on the 25th of October. Not that long now. Coming up quick.
Either way, just to close this plus thing out, sign up for the whole shebang. If you're listening on your phone right now, you can just click the text in the show description that talks about signing up for plus. It's a big link. You click it, you put in your card. Two seconds later, you add the new RSS feed. Now you got plus and we're best friends. But as I said, we're back in full swing. I have the second and third shows of the month recorded already. They're going to the editor. One of them is a return guest who is a preserver of an oral tradition, or should I say saga? And the other is a pretty perfect guest for this whole what's up with free energy devices, ether physics, and flying saucers kick I've been on because he runs those conferences. So I know you're going to love him. And I'm out of here. I've done my part. Your move, ancient secret keepers, giant bone hiders, and Freemasons of Phoenix. Your fucking move. You're going to love this song, too. And I kid. I kid the Freemasons. You would hardly recognize me. I'm so glad. Now I'm a Mason.